good evening, Trekkies and Trekkers around the globe. It's Monday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That means we're live. You can let your fingers do your walking and call Trek Talking right now. Our number here is 646-668-2433. And you may have noticed that we played the Prodigy theme song instead of our usual theme song. And that's because we have a very special show for you guys tonight. We're going to be talking everything prodigy that's right it's a total prodigy show we're gonna have a lot of fun but before we get into that let me go around the room and introduce my awesome trek experts we have with us as usual the trifecta from portland we'll start out with david the donut guy how you doing tonight david oh pretty sad i don't have any donuts you're fired that's it you're done (laughs) one job david one job and you did you you, that's it (laughs) yeah dude you need a a conveyor belt or something some kind of device (laughs) we gotta work on this also from portland as well we have with us paul the toy slash wine guy how you doing paul I'm good, man. I'm good. I don't know, though. I really think we need to reevaluate. I don't know if we are a trifecta from Portland or are we a troika? Because we are a group of three working together. And so we might be a troika. We might have to every now and then kind of, you know, get a little bit more cosmopolis with our lingo. But, you know, that's not up for me to decide. But it sounds cool. It sounds like something could be a hat trick. It's like an angry Klingon bar conversation. Troika! You know, I mean, it kind of has that vibe. To it, so <laughs> we can do You that. never know. But no one knows better about angry bar conversation among Klingons than you, Jim. So. Well, that, this <laughs> is very <laughs> true. Inside. But doing good. <laughs> and Rob, it is heck to have our guest on here today. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. And uh, wrapping up our Troika from Portland, we have our very own Eric. How are you doing tonight, Eric? Oh, man, I am doing great. I love listening to that theme, that fantastic composition by Nami Malumid. I love it. It has such wonder to it. It's got like the starry-eyed feel to it that I think a child should have watching this show. Although uh, it's not just made for kids. I think we've all learned that, and I'm excited to talk about that tonight. Well, I did reach out to her, and uh, she's very busy, but she's very interested in coming on and talking with us about the score. So uh, if I... Can work that out, make that happen. I, you know how I am with music. I'd love I to do. get her on. Mm-hmm. So, and wrapping up my Trek experts, we have our very own Charles, who is not in Portland, but is in Las Vegas. How you doing, Charles? I'm doing all right. Doing better. The weather's warming up, and my congestion's going away. So, all is good. Well, I'll tell you what, it is frigid here in Vermont. I mean, frigid cold. Um, But that's okay. That's what you expect from the Green Mountain State, right? Frigid and cold. So anyways, I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim. And as I said, we're going to be all prodigy tonight. We are so lucky that we have with us live on the line right now um, the uh, co-executive producer, of Star Trek Prodigy. Uh, let me read this because I, I had to change it, so I want to get it right. Co-producer and writer on season one and co-executive producer and story editor slash co-head writer on season two of Star Trek Prodigy, the one, the only, the awesome, the talented Aaron Walkie. How are you doing tonight, Aaron? Welcome to the show. 
Uh, I'm great. I don't know how to follow that <laughs> that rip roaring introduction, but uh, uh, thank you for having me. Always always glad to talk all things Star Trek with uh, my fellow Trekkers, Trekkies, and everybody in between. So uh, it's it's a pleasure to have you on, and we really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Um, so I wanted to start out by saying congratulations on the uh, nomination for the outstanding uh, animated series Emmy Award for a the first ever children's and family award that prodigy was nominated for that must feel really good. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is really phenomenal because, you know, as I've said many times and uh, so the Hagemans, you know, it, our, our, our show is very much a team effort and it's a labor of love. So, you know, we have so many incredibly talented, hardworking artists and writers and, uh, and directors and editors and voice actors, all of whom absolutely love Star Trek and love our show with all their heart. So it, it really means the world to, to us to uh, get a little recognition by the Emmy, uh, you know, Academy. And it's, it's, as they say, it's an honor to be nominated, but, uh, you know, it was a really stiff competition this year. So we, we, we feel especially grateful and lucky. I'm I'm pretty sure you guys are going to win it though, because Prodigy is something <laughs> special. So I'm I'm pretty sure. Don't so it. no no don't do that don't do that. <laughs> so um, I, I wanted to ask you the obvious question. Uh, so were you a Star Trek fan before you landed the gig on Prodigy? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, this might sound like an exaggeration, but I swear it's the truth. Like, I literally, one of my earliest memories as a human being uh, was sitting on the couch with my dad, uh, and there was the sweeping fanfare playing, and I, I, I was watching the Enterprise D saucer section separating from the secondary hall, and I realized years later that that was me watching the live world premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation uh, with my dad way back in September of 1987. And so, like, that was, like, sort of a very formative core memory for me. And uh, I, you know, I've been a Star Trek fan ever since, you know, watching uh, the original series with my aunt and uncle and what, coming home from school and watching, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise and on and on and on, going to the, one of, some of my first action movies I saw in the theater were, you know, Star Trek movies. <laughs> so it's, it's one of the first jobs I've ever worked on. You know, I, I'm a screenwriter and producer and I've worked on a lot of, you know, really interesting projects with like Guillermo del Toro and stuff, but it's, it's sort of the first time uh, on a show where it felt less like writing and more like breathing just because like I've been so saturated in Star Trek my whole life. And I was like, of course that's how a Heisenberg compensator works. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's been wonderful. <laughs> Now that's funny. <laughs> the isolinear chips don't go there; they go there. I love yeah, it. Yeah, you have I to. Absolutely, I, you have to have data-like speed and move them around in order to reassemble the isolinear. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. So I wanted to ask you. Uh, obviously, you're a Star Trek fan because the uh, the episode "All the Worlds a Stage." Um, every week on our Facebook page, we ask our fans to score each episode and we collect the scores, we tabulate them. And then we talk about that week's episode on the podcast and all the world's a stage got a 9.6 out of 10 from our wow. Facebook. And uh, 
The only other episode that scored higher than that, believe it or not, was a moral star part two, which scored 9.7. So wow. all the world on the stage was one of our favorite episodes. And <laughs> obviously, <laughs> yeah, you had to be a huge Star Trek fan to throw all those references in there. And it just, it was just a fun episode and you must've had a blast writing it. Where did you come up with some of those, those ideas and to put in it because it's phenomenal. Well, this one was really interesting because I, I, I should say right off the bat, I, you know, I was far from the only Trekkie in the room, in the writer's room. Uh, I was certainly one of the biggest ones alongside people like the, uh, Julie and, and Shauna Benson. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the other writers each had their favorite Star Trek. But I, I think I was one of the few people that could say that I, I'd seen, like, every episode and movie of Star Trek, uh, you know, alongside maybe Shauna. Uh, so we all kind of, like, we, uh, with this episode in particular, we had uh, sort of a brainstorming session, you know, every so often just to kind of recharge the juices and make sure we're not, you know, leaving any interesting, fun high concept science fiction ideas on the table. We have just a, you know, uh, we take a half hour and everybody just writes down as many interesting story prompts as they could. And in this case, it was a, a bunch of just different ideas that kind of coalesced together. Uh, like one of our other staff writers, Deandra Pendleton Thompson, uh, she was the uh, writer's assistant on Picard season one. And then she became a staff writer on our show. She came in with a story prompt that, that basically was just, she said she came from a theatrical background and said, um, you know, what if there was an episode called All the World's a Stage? And and uh, she said, like, oh, what if there was, like, everybody, they arrive on a planet and everybody's acting out captain's logs. And, and of course, the room was like, well, how would that work? How would that happen? And, you know, Shauna chimed in and said, uh, you know, well, what if they were listening to subspace frequencies? And then uh, then they're like, well, maybe, but then gradually we kind of realized uh, it's a cultural contamination episode, <laughs> you know, and those were, were some of my favorite TOS episodes, like a piece of the action and, uh, you know, patterns of force and uh, tons of other occasions where you just see like a, a planet's a sort of social evolution get completely skewed by some misnomer or something. And it's a very like TOS idea. And so, you know, that really got our wheel spinning. And I was very excited by that because, you know, I, grew, as I briefly alluded to, I grew up listening to the original or watching the, the original series at, at my aunt's house uh, from a very early age. And what always stuck out to me, even uh, as a young person, was how unapologetically uh, weird it was. <laughs> and it was my chance to kind of really embrace that sort of those bold swings, you know, it, like how many shows are out there that, that could have an episode like Balance of Terror alongside an episode like The Trouble with Tribbles, and yeah. then, you know, cap it off an episode of Space Lincoln. Like, like it's an incredible show that just contains <laughs> multitudes. And, you know, we, we were like, we need to do an episode, because one of the mandates of, of Prodigy was very much uh, to introduce new and young audiences to uh, Star Trek in all of its incarnations. And for me, I, I, my sincerest memories of uh, the original series were these just like, truly outlandish, like, how did they get here sort of opening of plots. And then gradually you kind of unwind that mystery and realize there is a somewhat plausible scientific explanation behind it. 
And so that, that uh, quickly kind of led us down the path of like, what if there was somebody who had crash landed on this planet? Uh, and then that, then of course, started talking about like, well, who would be left behind? And like, well, it'd be a red shirt, of course, um, because they, they did that all the time where if a red shirt's gotten, you know, taken out left and right by a dichronian cloud creature or what have you, they, Kirk would just be sad for a moment and then he'd move on. <laughs> so we thought that quickly thought, well, what if one of those red shirts survives? Um, and then that sort of spun out from there. And then, of course, you know, we were like, well, which red shirt should it be if it is from Enterprise? And, you know, we would look at the list, and that kind of led us to the episode Obsession, where, you know, we had the character of Ensign Garovic, who had this really interesting arc about, like, he was questioning whether he was Starfleet, and, you know, you know he kind of chickened out, and then he, he bonds with Kirk uh, and learns, you know, what it means to be brave in the face of, of uh, you know, uh, fear or dichronium cloud creatures. <laughs> and then, uh, sure enough, he, uh, you know, by the end of it, he and Kirk really have made this uh, really incredible uh, friendship out of it. And then you never see him again. <laughs> and I was like, well, what happened to Garovic? And it felt like this perfect sort of story rhyme to where our own characters were on Prodigy as they were sort of realizing that they may not be able to go to Starfleet right away. And does that still make them Starfleet? And it just kind of, it was kismet of how it all kind of came together. Um, and yeah, it was, and of course, the, the cherry on top being, we finally find out what happened to uh, the, uh, the original Galileo, or I should say the second Galileo, which disappeared after season two. <laughs> wow. It's a great episode, by the way. And uh, so speaking of trying to keep the show for kids, but also for people like us that are huge fans, was it challenging in the episode, let the sleeping Borg lie? Was it challenging to write the Borg uh, still creepy and scary, but not enough that it would frighten children? How did you walk that line? Yeah. I mean, that was a very uh, tricky challenge because, you know, we are trying to introduce, you know, new audiences to Star Trek and, I think we would have been remiss if we just ignored the board altogether because they occupy such an outside space in, you know, the Star Trek fandom and, and in the, the universe. So, you know, we were like, we have to, to introduce people to what the Borg are, but then also, you know, there is the tricky part of like, <laughs> how do we make it so these kids aren't immediately assimilated? And also what, what is the state of the Borg after the end of Voyager, you know, where they were effectively sort of, decimated and functionally hobbled. I think that's what they, what uh, Gerardi says in Picard, uh, that the Borg as we know it no longer exists. So it's like, well, what do they look like in, in this particular uh, period of time after Voyager? Um, and slowly those two questions kind of resolve into an answer, which is like, oh, like they might be sort of on their heels. They might be sort of um, functionally hobbled. Maybe their neurolytic, uh, that neurolytic pathogen that Janeway uh, injected with them in, in Voyager's endgame uh, cause them to lose their nano probes, so they can't just immediately, you know, shoot you with <laughs> with probes, and then you're instantly aboard. Which which means they kind of reverted back to kind of TNG era Borg, where they drag you off to an assimilation chamber. Um, you know, that's still pretty scary stuff for a kid, uh, for sure. Uh, so you know, Deandra and the writing team, we all worked really hard to kind of think about like what is the tone of this episode, and then we realized, oh, it's a haunted house episode, right? You know, the, the, it's a place where, where terrible things maybe once happened, and then, you know, you, you just have to be careful not to awaken the beast, so to, so to speak. 
Um, so in that regard, I think we managed to very carefully walk a line that actually kind of met all, all those criteria. But it was, I, I won't lie, it was a very hard line to walk. <laughs> but it, it came out so well. I just want to say one more thing before we do have a caller on the line. We'll get to this caller. Sure. But um, the Crossroads episode, I thought it was great to see a Klingon and a mm-hmm. Zindi and and a Kazon, along with a surprise uh, guest from, from a past episode, the TNG, all together in one episode. Yeah. I thought that was great the way And And he Romulans with the DGDRX. Oh, oh, that's right. The Romulans as well. Yep. And the, it was yeah. great the way that you worked that all in. And uh, let's go to the phone lines. We have a caller. Good evening. Thank you for calling Trek Talk. And what's your name and where are you calling us from tonight? Hello? Caller? Caller. They may be caught in the pattern buffer. Yeah, it could be. Sometimes people come on the they, they, they they're afraid to talk when they get on the air. Are you listening? Can you hear us? Caller? Okay. All right. Well we'll we'll leave the line open if the caller decides to say something and I will pass the baton <laughs> over over to our very, our very own Paul. Take it away, Paul. Thanks, Jim. It is an incredible treat to get to talk to you tonight, uh, Aaron. Really, thanks for coming on and being so uh, generous with your time. Uh, wow, you are doing phenomenal work, my, my friend. Phenomenal work. Well, thank you. Uh, well, I, I do want to just reiterate that once again, it's a team effort. I, I happen to be a very, very outspoken fan, but it, it, it's not just me. It's the whole whole crew. Well, it's great. It's great. A lot of us on the uh, on the podcast here are, I think, at least three of us are, are Portland residents. And I just recently learned that the Hagemans are from Portland, from Lake Oswego, which I didn't even know until they recently. are. Got a little yes. kindred spirits they, going on here. Something in the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they definitely love the Goonies because they grew up right next to where the Goonies was filmed. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I wanted to ask you about. Uh, your formation as, as a writer and uh, what, you know, cause obviously you've got a, a deep reverence for Star Trek and for all the different parts of the franchise. I mean, to bring out Garavik, that's going deep back in the drawer, man. That's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal to pull something like that out there. It's just so great. And you can see all the details. Just, this is a group of writers who clearly just love what they're doing like passionately. I mean, it just comes across so, so well. But I wanted to ask you for yourself, like, I mean, so many people growing up, they're like, I want to be a director. Yeah. You know, that's, that's always what, mm-hmm. you know, people get all fired up for the glamour of that. But uh, I think it's a, a little different thing sometimes to be inspired to write. And I was just curious, is there a, a particular series for you or like a movie going experience or something in your youth that said, that's it for me. I want to, I want to write. Mm-hmm. Is there like one influence that really grabbed you by the lapels and said, come this way. Aaron Walkie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Like, I always just kind of wanted to tell stories, I guess. And I, you know, I I think I'd be lying if I didn't say Star Trek was certainly part of that because, you know, I I'm sort of obsessed with you know those stories that all kind of tie into some greater grand adventure. And Star Trek was one of those weird kind of experiments in television where they really did try to take pains to make it all feel 
of a universe, you know, and, and have unexpected callbacks and suddenly Scotty is on the bridge of the enterprise D and, you know, it's, it, 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 Star Trek was certainly an, uh, played an outsized role in my formation. Uh, I would also say like Amblin movies were very formative. I was a child of the eighties uh, and, you know, the, the Spielbergs and your Camerons and, uh, and whatnot and, uh, were really influential, like uh, on on my sense of storytelling, just because so much of it was, you know. And I know this has a double meaning in Star Trek, but <laughs> four quadrants, uh, which is you know young, <laughs> old, men, women, everybody in between, um, and that that uh, that kind of storytelling where I could go in and watch something and just be be just as excited about it as my sister and my dad would and my mom would be. Uh, where there's a sense of adventure, but also a sense of discovery and wonder and curiosity. And, you know, uh, Indiana Jones had such a profound influence on me, I would say, because, you know, it wasn't just the action sequences where he was, you know, fighting with a bullwhip on a tank tread. It was this sort of mystery. uh, uh, And he was was like a gentleman scholar who also could, you know, wield a gun and a pistol. It was pretty cool. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the Star Trek movies were huge. I, I think any science fiction was really influential on me growing up, and fantasy for that matter, just because, uh, you know, I grew up literally between two cornfields in, in a, a suburb between Indianapolis and future birthplace of Captain Janeway, Bloomington, Indiana, um, and, like, uh, there really wasn't much to do. Like, the Internet was all dial-up, so it wasn't very... <laughs> Uh, there wasn't very much, like, you'd have to wait uh, five minutes to load a web page. So all I could do is just basically watch television and uh, keep my local blockbuster rented out of every sci-fi and, and fantasy movies <laughs> they had. Um, and so, I, but I do remember there was a long stretch of, uh, I believe it's Chicago's WGN, which is sort of like the local sort of affiliate uh, station. They uh, they would on Saturdays they would have like a movie matinee where they would show probably heavily edited for television uh, science fiction movies and so like for whatever reason I I keyed into that and every Saturday it was like a ritual where I would I would watch a movie that was probably only maybe an uh, uh, hour and a half or two hours long but they'd stretch it out with commercials so it would be like a four hour <laughs> event. <laughs> and I, I watched so many incredible films that way, way younger than I probably would have been able to otherwise. I got to see all of the Alien movies. I got to see uh, an old movie called Enemy Mine, which, uh, oh, you know, felt very Star trek so to me. Uh, yeah. yeah um, gosh, yeah. And then they they played Star Trek all the time, of course. Uh, it, you know, um and that, like, that was kind of just my way of kind of my window on the world, so to speak, was just these old VHSs and, and TV, uh, TV shows and, and, made for, and edited for TV movies. And uh, eventually my dad, you know, we would, whenever there was like cool, a new Star Trek movie, he would take, it, take me to go see it. And that was sort of our way of bonding because he was very much a TOS guy. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it was, it's always just kind of in presence, you know, I, I wouldn't call me like a, my, my group of friends, like, uh, rebels, because we definitely were probably nerds, but, but, you know, we were definitely like sitting on the playground and just like our, our method of bonding and, and like being a social group was just sort of like forever debating 
you know, whether who would win, you know, Terminator versus the Predator or, you know, what if Lord of the Rings was set in the Dune universe. Like, like, and that was just what we did <laughs> around the playground. And it was like this really interesting sort of, um, I guess, laying the groundwork for wanting to tell my own stories eventually. Um, and yeah, and, you know, I, and I wrote, I wrote short stories. I wrote, I curiously, I found this, I was visiting my parents' house the other day back in Indiana and, or I, well, not the other day, a few months ago. And, uh, they dug up a script that I had when I was like six and it was some sort of like satire of mockumentaries, but also Star Trek was in there. <laughs> and, uh, I don't feel this way anymore, but I had this joke about like, at one point, the original USS Enterprise shows up, and they call it the USS Old Fart. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> really, I, I had an eye for sort of parody, I guess, back then. Um, but, you know, it was – I think I just was bursting with all of these – all this imagination and nowhere to put it. And so my parents just kind of uh, said, well, as long as he's doing that, he's not getting into trouble. <laughs> and then – uh, eventually, of course, so when I went to college, I kind of confessed to my parents that I wanted to try to do that for a living. Um, and they were had no idea what I was talking about because they're not in the affiliated with the entertainment industry whatsoever. But, you know, they were they gave me the, the latitude to, you know, express myself and, and study that alongside psychology and English and theater and all that. And it was a it's, it was a really fun ride. Well, fantastic. I mean, clearly you were at age six writing a script. I mean, you're shot out of a cannon. Your parents are like, aim it at Hollywood, quick. <laughs> Get him out of here. And now yeah. it's, you'll, you'll be in line day one for the Fablemans, it sounds like, for sure. So, oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, that was, absolutely that was excited for that. version of my life. Yeah. It's so great. It's so great. But uh, I, one other question I wanted to ask is I just it, it seems like uh, one of the things I've been enjoying so much about these last few episodes is this these parallel storytelling going on where you've got, you know, mm-hmm. Dahl and everybody on the protostar and you've got Janeway and they're cruising up. And then this week we came together, which was just so exciting for me. And it, it made me wonder because you start, you know, spinning ahead. Well, what will happen now? Uh, but one of the things I'm yeah. really curious about is where you've got this wonderful room of all the creative, you know, writers together. How far out do you have your map? I mean, NDAs notwithstanding, but how, how, uh, like, do you have it mapped out years and seasons in advance where you want to go? Or, I mean, just how much latitude do you have? That that just fascinates me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a you have to strike a balance. I found. Because if you micro plan everything too much in advance, then you have no room for discovery. Uh, no, no pun intended in the Star Trek world. Um, but, <laughs> but like it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you should definitely have a pretty solid sense of like where you start, where you end, uh, you know, where your midpoint is. And then from there, you know, start to plan moments where your individual character arcs can be expressed uh, through the lens of these you know, episodes that hopefully have uh, fulfilled the, the promise of the premise of the show. For instance, in Star Trek, you, you are kind of expected to see strange new worlds and civilizations and scientific uh, mysteries and uh, uh, a sense of duty and, you know, coming together as one to over, overcome obstacles and uh, peace and fellowship out among the stars. Uh, so, you know, we kind of like, what we tend to do is we will map out 
an approximation of like, you know, what the season will look like. And, but before we start writing uh, the first episode, we will have at least like a headline of what we think each episode is going to be about. And, you know, uh, uh, both the premise and what major sort of character arc moments will happen that happen in that episode. Um, and, uh, you know, w- when I say you need to leave room for discovery, sometimes when you are writing the episodes, after you've created that roadmap of 10 or 20 episodes, uh, you will discover, oh, this thing that this revelation or this personal growth of this character that we originally had happening in episode nine actually works better back in episode six. And then you kind of, you leave yourself a little bit of latitude to, you know, to adjust that. So then you're not saving all of the good stuff for later. You're having it as your characters are on along for the ride. And so for instance, you you mentioned like the, the, um, the coming together of, of the twin storylines of the Dauntless and the protostar, you know, that very much was something that we had planned from the beginning because uh, I think we all kind of have seen shows or movies where you have the two characters that are kind of like playing cat and mouse, but, but you kind of, if they don't really know each other, they, each other exists, then it doesn't have the same resonance. And so we were like, why don't we find a way to have them meet, but then uh, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and then just <laughs> complicate things? Because I, I find that complicating stories actually just makes them more interesting. You know, if you write yourself into a corner, it, it makes it, if you don't know how you're getting out of it, then your audience doesn't either. And then you it makes it all the more exciting when you come up with that sort of Hail Mary uh, surprise solution. Um, and so, so it's, that's sort of a longish answer of it's, it's a delicate balance of, of both, uh, you know, allowing yourself to surprise yourself, but also giving yourself enough of a structure that you can confidently know which pieces you can move around and which ones are the, the elements that you're building to. Uh, well, balance cheap, my friend. That's all I know. Is <laughs> <laughs> Today was just uh, the, the one that it just aired, uh, this most recent one, Crossroads, just incredibly satisfying and super exciting. I was just like, this. I had no idea where we're going from you know one sequence to the next, and I didn't care. <laughs> I was just like, this is great. <laughs> It was extremely fun and uh, really, really well put together. So I want to make sure we uh, get a chance to, to keep the mic in front of all of our other co-hosts here today, too. I'll just shamelessly say, uh, if you ever have to bring back Dreadnought, I'm not sad. So <laughs> Fair enough. Such a fun character. But uh, I'm, I can see Eric is probably uh, the top of his head's erupting like, uh, like a volcano someplace. Would you like to take the baton, my friend? <laughs> I absolutely would. I've been, uh, what is that, chomping at the bit. My bit is all worn down already, so <laughs> thank you, Aaron, for coming on the show. This is such a privilege to, to talk to somebody who's, you know, in the current lexicon of Star Trek shows and currently writing stuff, and just like, I feel like, uh, you know, from your from your team's mouth uh, do come our stories that we're enjoying right now. So um, Paul asked some great questions about writing and the writing experience. And I have um, kind of a specific question I want to ask about that. Uh, You just recently, well, or I should say you, you gave, I guess, a, a, uh, uh, an interview recently um, to Trek Corps. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that you talked about with regards to writing for the show were the the kind of wish list wall, the things that you really wanted to include in Prodigy, 
and then the mm-hmm. bills to paywall, the the things that yeah. you kind of like had to include. And so I think that's an excellent article. Everybody should go and check it out and read it. But one of the specific questions that I had relative to that were, or, or was, were there any bills that you were expected to pay that you either reluctantly paid or <laughs> or that you were kind of like, oh, man, this feels like a round peg into a square hole or, you know, was there anything like that where that was a real challenge where you had to integrate something that, you know, maybe didn't at first naturally flow but then became part of the story? Well, I mean, it's it's that's a tricky question to answer because usually we call them bills to play to pay specifically because they're just stuff that we know as writers has to happen, you know? Mm. Um, and usually that comes out because it, not because it's necessarily like the most fun thing in the world to write, which that's sort of the wish, the wish list wall. It's just like, you know, <laughs> what if somebody gets caught in a transporter buffer, you know, like where just fun stuff. And then the bills to pay is like that, you know, the emotional character-driven stuff that in order for it to be a good story or a compelling story or an interesting story, uh, you know, those things have to happen, uh, you know. And, and an, an example would be, like, finding a way for uh, Dow and Janeway to meet without giving up, like, the whole, the, the whole show. That was a really hard moment to, 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 to earn, but we were like – I, it, it, it feels so right in our minds that you want you want a moment where where like you you catch a glimpse of what Vice Admiral Janeway is would be to Dow under different circumstances. You know that's almost like that what if kind of uh, if if Dow really had just met Vice Admiral Janeway, you know, fresh out of the the Tars Lamora without all this business with the uh, the construct and whatnot. We like that moment. I think was something that we really wanted to see. Just be, you know that she is encouraging and she is a good person. And it's it's only circumstances that kind of drove them apart. And that that was something we talked about a lot in the room. Was for this back half of the season, especially you know we talked about kind of two two movies came up. One was The Fugitive, where you 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 believe in both Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones's characters. Like neither one is a bad guy. You just, they're both just kind of doing what they have to. And, you know, under different circumstances, they could, they could have been friends to quote (laughs) balance of terror. Um, And, you know, I think that that, that is something we wanted to see for sure. Um, And, you know, I think that what, what I find typically is, um, you know, if you are truly diligent and you're honest about the things that have to go into a story, um, then, inevitably, even if they're tricky or unpleasant, you know, it's like, you know, it's like eating your greens. Like uh, for me, at least, I just want to see all the fun science fiction stuff. <laughs> um, and, but then when you actually are, are honest and truthful to the character's intent, then it actually makes the rest of the story really uh, work more powerfully. So um, that, that's the sort of, that, that's sort of my approach to those sorts of things is like, you know, and they, they and they, they definitely take up, time in the series, you know, you have to lay groundwork for them and maybe there'll be one or two or three or four crazy science fiction ideas that didn't quite make it in uh, to the show because you had to make room for those moments of character growth, but ultimately they're worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And w- what you were mentioning about Dal there kind of 
you know, it's the classic sort of nature versus nurture argument, right? Like if Dal had had more yeah. opportunities and was like raised by the right person, would would he have turned out different? And we get to kind of see his story, I think, and how the nurture can actually transform a person. Yeah, yeah. We talked actually quite at length uh, when we first opened the writer's room uh, about, you know, who are the people that grew up outside the Federation and how would, how would someone who knew nothing of the Federation uh, benefit from it and grow from it. And we definitely talked a lot about, uh, you know, sort of child development and, you know, those who, those who have and those who have not. And, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of, you know, shelter and then emotional support and how those can completely transform a person if, if they're provided. And that's what the Federation kind of represents. And we thought that was a really beautiful story to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would completely agree, and I, I think it's um, one that probably resonates both with young audiences and with older audiences, and, you know, each audience might get it on different levels, which I think is one of the really cool things about this show. It feels to me like um, it's just soft enough to be a kid's show. It's a little scary, but um, there's some really deep stuff being explored uh, in just about every episode here, so I really dig that. Um, one well, of thanks. the other- – yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other things I really was curious about, so uh, I love me some Janeway, honestly. You're from Indiana. Mm-hmm. Have, well, first of all, have you been to see the statue yet? <laughs> uh, I, ha- I haven't had a chance to get back to Bloomington just okay. yet. I am okay. going to be going back to Starbase Indy uh, for Thanksgiving weekend, actually later this week. So there's a little plug. If, if anybody is in the greater Indiana area, uh, you can come see me at Starbase Indy. Uh, uh, and uh, I think there's going to be a couple other prodigy people there. Uh, Bonnie Gordon, who's wonderful uh, in, in the Trek community and the greater, uh, you know, sort of geek community. She, she's the voice of uh, the, the, the USS Protostar, the ship computer. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll be there. And then um, uh, uh, so is our Klingon Pop Warrior, who is sort of our, our in-house Klingon translator. <laughs> and she's also... <laughs> composes Klingon music, she'll be there. Um, but I, I, have, I was among the first to donate to create the Janeway statue in Bloomington. And I did watch the unveiling live uh, on the live stream, but just due to the, the pandemic and stuff, I haven't had a chance to get, to get back yet. But it's on my list. Oh, that's fantastic. I can't wait to visit it myself. I am uh, originally from Illinois, so just one state over, and I, I definitely plan to make it sure. over to, to Bloomington one of these days. Um, so regarding, you know, Janeway, we get to see lots of good Admiral Janeway now in this latter part of the season, mm-hmm. which I'm very excited about. And one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting was that you brought a ship into this called the Dauntless. And this is obviously yes. not the Dauntless because everybody knows that the Dauntless was not actually a Federation ship. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of find out more from you, uh, you know, what was your thinking process here? Is this Janeway paying homage to her adventures in the, in the other quadrant or what? Well, it, you know, uh, it's, it, 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 it was a really interesting process of how we arrived at that particular ship. You know, we could have just invented a new ship, but that didn't feel totally like adequate because, you know, this was supposed to be, what happened post Voyager? All you know, the Vo- Voyager encountered so many completely game-changing, faster-than-light technologies and 
for transwarp and coaxial warp drive and quantum slipstream. Uh, they even, you know, they took detailed scans of the fake Dauntless that were so detailed, they were able to create their own quantum slipstream with their limited means aboard Voyager and shave 10,000 light years off their journey. Um, but as, as you know, in Voyager, it wasn't quite perfected yet, uh, even though I think in the episode Think Tank, they suggest that, that, you know, it could be perfected. But it was always this sort of like this hanging chad in the Star Trek fandom. It's like, well, what happened to all the, that amazing tech that they brought back? And then obviously there's also some future tech that was left behind, <laughs> like the mobile emitter and, and the, uh, uh, the stuff that uh, the Janeway from the future left behind in the Voyager finale. So there was like all this amazing technology that, that completely would revolutionize uh, a society that was built on exploration, like the Federation. Um, and so... You know, when we were sort of like talking about like what 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 does the Federation look like seven eight years later or, or after they kind of return with all this stuff, um, and you know that was one of the things that kind of came up as we were you know talking amongst ourselves and consulting with our our, our consultant uh, David Mack, who is uh, you know a huge presence in the Star Trek uh, author community. Uh, he's written a ton of the Star Trek books, uh, including I think one of the Coda theories. Um, like that, that explore this very sort of time frame of, you know, the, the post Voyager, post Nemesis, uh, Star Trek universe. Um, you know, he, it was brought up of like, well, what, what ship could rival the protostar in speed? And they're like, well, what if it was a quantum slipstream ship? And then that got, it got us thinking of like, well, why, why is it that they were able to perfect it? What was that missing component? And then we kind of dug into the archives and realized that uh, Rick Sternbach, who I believe in, uh, designed the original Dauntless, you know, that sort of tortoise shell looking organic uh, ship that was seen in, in Hope and Fear and Voyager, uh, he actually has gone on record and said that, in his opinion, the reason that Quantum Slipstream didn't work perfectly with, with Voyager was because of the hull shape wasn't right. And we were like, oh, how interesting. So, so, that, so the actual unusual shape of the ship was what helped, allowed quantum slipstream to work. So then we were like, well, if the ship's already going to look like the Dauntless and it's going to use a, a, it's going to be shaped like the Dauntless and it's going to use a quantum slipstream drive, we may as well just have it be uh, a Dauntless class ship, uh, which further makes sense because at least in one alternate timeline in Enterprise, I think we see there is a Dauntless flash that looks almost exactly like it uh, seen in a couple hundred years or something. So it actually fills in the gap and answers five questions in canon if we just have Starfleet took those extremely uh, meticulous scans and reverse engineered it into their own version of a Dauntless flash starship. Um, and as far as calling it the Dauntless, I think... Yeah, we, we kind of suggest in one of the admiral's logs that they've been dropping on uh, Instagram that are sort of like the, the story told from the perspective of Vice Admiral Janeway. Uh, you hear them say that, um, that Bolana Torres essentially said, you know, like if, that, if the mission of this ship is to venture back into the Delta Quadrant and sort of fix the, the mistakes uh, and the, that we made there, uh, we should, why not call it the Dauntless as sort of a solid reminder of, of the things that we learned, but also the things that we need to make right. So that's sort of the long-winded answer, but that is where the Dauntless came from. That is an absolutely perfect answer that I hope everybody who has ever had any concern about the canon of this ship <laughs> was listening to, because to me that makes absolutely perfect sense that uh, they would obviously yeah. bring that technology back with them. 
that they would use it, that, you know, Janeway would be an influence, that Janeway might even have been one of the ones who had chosen to uh, have called it the Dauntless. So um, excellent answer. Thank you so much, sir, for that. <laughs> for sure. Um, I had I, another... Did I get my, my Trek street cred? <laughs> I, you know what? Uh, it was enough for me, my friend, and I'm, I'm pretty hard. Okay. So, uh, you know, we, I, it, it, <laughs> we are sending you latinum, Aaron. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> Thank you. A great big bucket of latinum is coming your way. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, I had kind of like a philosophical question that I was going to ask. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of leave this out here. You, you, you can go as deep as you want to, but I want to leave room for Charles uh, and David here, too. But, um, you know, you had mentioned Next Generation. And I also, despite mm-hmm. the fact that I'm slightly older than you, I've um, kind of my high school years and 80s uh, when it was coming out. And, you know, I actually convinced my family to watch it with me and that sort of thing. So I was there was there with you watching Encounter at Farpoint. Um, and I would say that in the years subsequent to that, I've learned much more about TOS. And I I wonder, you know, there's definitely a, a an evolution of Star Trek from TOS to TNG years. And I would say that there's also an evolution from the TNG years, which I take all the way through Voyager, to mm-hmm. what we have these days. And so as a Trek fan, I'm kind of wondering, do you – what how do you – do you feel like, A, um, Star Trek is the same or different from what it used to be? B, is it staying on message, so to speak? And, um, you know, anything else you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I will say that, I, you know, I consider it a tremendous honor and a privilege uh, to kind of be in this, what I like to call the kind of the third wave of Star Trek uh, you know, and it's it, it. You're absolutely right that each generation kind of has the, uh, their own sort of entryway, and that is very much reflective of the storytelling, you know, of of the time. And I think that's not to say that that old Star Trek can't speak to new audiences, because I think it absolutely can. But I think all of us kind of needed that sort of like entry point of like that's my Star Trek, and then you get it makes you kind of curious about. Uh, you know, what, what came before or after. And part of what made me curious about that stuff was seeing those funny, fun little canon connections that further reinforced that these all take place in the same universe. You know, uh, like the Star Trek movies, the second one, uh, you don't need to know that, uh, you don't need to have watched Space Seed right. from TOS to understand Wrath of Khan. But the fact that you can go back and see the, oh, oh wow, there's like a whole episode that just is sets up this, this, uh, this movie and is a, a great episode unto itself is what, incredible. And then you have, you know, obviously the pilot of TNG. You have, uh, um, you know, doc, a very old Dr. McCoy wandering around <laughs> the ship and just saying, like, you, you take care of her, she'll take care of you. You know, and obviously there's episodes like Relics and then Deep Space Nine was very much like a central hub. And, you know, I think if there's one thing that I think that a lot of these shows in this sort of new wave of Star Trek is trying to do now that, you know, it's sort of uh, caught its, um, you know, its wave, I guess, is just to try to continue that tradition, you know, that that for better or for worse, like the the Fox brain takes place in the same same universe as uh, Encounter at Farpoint or Inner Light. And that's what part of what makes it so wonderful because Star Trek 
you know, contains multitudes, as I believe I said elsewhere. Um, and, you know, I think that to paraphrase Spock, I think at one point he said that change is the essential process of all existence. And I think that, that both embracing the kind of like the new um, uh, aesthetics that, that might come with uh, in this sort of golden age of television or peak TV or whatever you want to call it, but, but always kind of hearkening back to the best of what makes Star Trek great. I mean, that's, that's all you can do because, you know, obviously the Berman era was very different from the TOS era and the movies are very different from the TV shows, but they all share sort of a common ancestry and, uh, and a spirit of exploration uh, of, of duty and honor and kindness and curiosity. And I think if you can, if you can infuse your show with all of that, and throw in some fun canon references, you know, it's hard not to see it as some great Star Trek. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the the other thing that Modern Trek is doing is they're kicking up that representation uh, notch just a little bit, Absolutely. right? They're bringing in more people of all sorts of walks of life, which I think is really special. So, uh, well, thank you so yeah, much. And that was there from the beginning. Yeah, it totally was, right? And now they're, they're it's like now the amp goes to 11, which I really like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, For sure. Aaron, Aaron, thank you for letting me chat with you. I'm going to pass the virtual baton over to my good friend Charles here. So, uh, Charles, take it away. All right. One thing I do like with what your series did and Strange New Worlds was focused on is doing episodic while doing serial where mm-hmm. we go in episode to episode, but we follow a storyline. I think two of the storylines that really caught us this season, this half the season, was one, Dal being a loner, not knowing anything about himself. And all of a sudden we go to the space station, and they're like, oh, we know who your species is. Notify Starfleet. That's interesting. That's the mm-hmm. last we heard about him, and we kind of sit there thinking, okay, what is going to happen with him? Because Starfleet has some special knowledge about this species that we don't know about yet. And it's a storyline that we're kind of sitting there like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And so it's one we're really kind of waiting to see what happens with it. But the second storyline... As we kind of go like A, B, C stories, we kind of went to a D or E story with Murph. Mm-hmm. And where did the idea, where did the idea come with, come from for the morphosis on him? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's only so much I can say regarding spoilers and whatnot. Right. But, but in terms of, uh, you know, planting those seeds and storylines that we'll, we'll be returning to, you know, that is one of the benefits, I suppose, of, of the, you know, this sort of streaming age that we're in. And that I think that at least there's a perceived tolerance for mystery and, like, long-form storytelling. And I think something, one, in terms of those storylines that, you know, you plant a question but don't immediately pay them off, but instead it serves almost like a, a North Star of, like, you know, this is, this is something that the, the show is going to be exploring. Just, you know, hang on tight and have fun along the way. Uh, it's something we kind of, at least many of the Trekkies in the room were inspired by Deep Space Nine in that way, 
you know, because I think you find out very early on, for instance, that, you know, Odo uh, doesn't know where his origins are um, and that, you know, he finds sort of like a strange key, but you don't really, you plant that and then they don't explore it at all until like two seasons later. And then you don't really get into it until like the back half of the show. But it, it works beautifully because that sense of longing is what's most important for the character. And then when you do finally explore it, it doesn't feel like it's, it's you know, been wasted. It feels like it's been simmering and, and expresses itself in other interesting ways. Uh, I'm not saying that you're going to wait, you're going to have to wait multiple seasons to find that stuff out. <laughs> but, uh, but, I, I, but the point being is like there, it, it's all about understanding the point of view of your character and and how that those sort of inherent wants and needs can can kind of express themselves in other situations like the episodes of the week that you were describing um you know as far as the the metamorphosis as as we've been calling it um you know we we decided very early on you know that we wanted to, to our audiences especially the younger audiences who might be watching the show with their parents to be able to grow up with with the characters, you know, we don't want it to be like the Simpsons where, you know, Bart Simpson is seven years old for 20 years. <laughs> um, you know, what, one of the inadvertent interesting joys of watching uh, shows is like, like these is like you got to watch characters like Leslie Crusher and, you know, Jake Sisko grow up before your eyes and become, you know, boys become men, become asp- aspiring, you know, Starfleet officers or what have you. And, and, and you know, young young girls becoming uh, women, and and you know, coming into their own, and finding who they really are, and that that sense of like growth, I I don't think is necessarily um, reserved for just the children you see on other series. You know, I think the fact that we are dealing with a bunch of teenagers, we were like, well, let's let's see them like both physically and and uh, you know, mentally change and, and evolve. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I suppose Murph, you know, we didn't want him to be sort of like a baby forever, that the sort of liability, but to, to, see, to see him kind of grow up a little bit and, you know, un- undergo his own sort of, I guess it's a little bit like adolescence or puberty or what have you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's, and I, I think it's an interesting journey that's only just begun. Well, it's interesting how we knew this was starting to happen. And all of a sudden, Murph ends up plastered on the wall. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at mm-hmm. Facebook one day, and it's like, oh, countdown to Murph's change. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I wasn't expecting them to turn that direction, but hey, I like that idea. Let's okay, let's build some excitement on Murph. It's like okay, mm-hmm. that's going to make Murph a little more popular character. And it's like that that was a very creative way of doing it. Yeah, I think that you guys was, did I a to, great. Go yeah, I, th- I think the uh, the the idea of, the, of doing the countdown to Murph, but that was uh, our amazing marketing team. They just kind of they pitched that idea, and we were like, "That sounds fun." And then they showed us the end result, and we were like, "This is incredible! <laughs> we love it." Um, I thought that was a really interesting interesting way to build a little bit of hype around Murph for sure. So very good job on that. So I will pass it over well, to David you. so we can finish off. Yeah. Hi. 
Hello. Can, can you hear me okay? Yeah. I can hear you, David. Ah, cool. Um, <clears throat> so I just had a one little question about, you mentioned about Deep Space Nine and all that stuff. And so I was wondering mm-hmm. with that whole idea that Cisco had brought back to triples, I was hoping maybe there might be a triple episode, possibly. I know it might be an NDA kind of thing, <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, I, I, I will say I love Tribbles with all my heart unapologetically. So uh, that's about all I can say. You know, whether they show up on our show or not, you'll have to wait and see. <laughs> all right, cool. That's, that's pretty much all I wanted to ask. <laughs> awesome. Okay. <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> Short well, tweet, baby. Well, Aaron, before we run out of time, there is one thing I wanted to ask. We, we talked about this at great length a couple of weeks ago when uh, we saw the episode, but the Borg cube that we see in Let Sleeping Borg Lie, is that the same Borg mm-hmm. cube? If you, can men- if you can tell us or not, that if you can't, that's fine. Is that the same Borg cube that we see on Star Trek Picard as the artifact? Hmm. Yeah, so, like, I, I, I don't want to definitively say it is or isn't because I know some people don't necessarily like the so-called small, small galaxy syndrome where everything is connected. Personally, I love that idea. Um, and we, we, we designed the, the board cube that you see in our show uh, to very much be of that same fleet. Like it, does, it borrows a lot of design language from, you know, that, that the, the artifact that you see later. So is it the same? I think we wanted to make it so that it certainly could be if you, if you wanted. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say it definitely was or definitely wasn't, but it just kind of gives you a sense of, like, you know, if it wasn't this one, it was maybe one very similar to it that was part of the same fleet, you know, because they were all kind of in the beta quadrant anyway. So it, it's certainly a possibility, but I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I want to say thank you for hanging out. And chatting with us tonight, we really appreciate it. And Prodigy is rocking, and just keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk uh, Trek. And uh, maybe we'll have to have you back on again uh, at the end of Season 2 when we have more to talk about. Uh, Yeah, uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, and if you want to, I mean, I'm open to it. Sure, why not? Uh, but, uh, yeah, I forgot to mention, if you want to, uh, you know, keep in touch, uh, who knows what's going to happen to Twitter. And, uh, but, but you can follow me there and other social media like Mastodon and Instagram. You just follow me at Good Aaron, G-O-O-D-A-A-R-O-N. And uh, I try to, uh, you know, put out notifications, tweets or toots or whatever they're called now, uh, whenever a new show drops or anything about our show. So, uh, yeah, keep in touch and, and stay tuned because I think you'll really enjoy uh, how the show, uh, how Prodigy goes. All right. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. Good night. Thanks, All Aaron. right, guys. That was Aaron Walkie from Star Trek Prodigy. I want to let you guys know we our next show won't be until December 1st because of the holidays that are coming up. So I want to take an opportunity to say thank you to Paul for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you, Paul. 
Oh, dude, what a pleasure. What a gentleman. What a great guest. Uh, real fantastic. Think... It's just uh, He was great. I, I just need I, – I can't wait for the next episode of that show to hit after today. I know. Uh, they, I know. It's... Really – <laughs> Talk about, you know, it's just he, this guy gets it. I mean, he just gets the whole thing. I mean, to find somebody that's just basically been a lifelong fan and just be as conversant about all those little corners of, uh, of Trekdom that he is, it's just, it just makes you feel great. What a, what a great guy. He's like one of us. He's like one of us on the podcast, only he has real authority over the show you know <laughs> it's great uh, well he really cares about it you know that comes across as he's you know feels a real you can tell they have a real sense of stewardship for uh what the work they are doing is and and where they want to take it and uh, create a legacy so what a great absolutely so thank you so much for booking him man and wonderful wonderful time and thank you so much eric for hanging out and truck talking with us thank you eric yeah you bet i had a great time as always guys thanks and thank you to David, even though you only asked a Tribble question. It was an important one. We all love our Tribble. So thank you so much, uh, David. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> next, next time, bring the donuts. <laughs> they might be covered with Tribble hair, but we'll see. Oh, that's okay. We're used to that. And thank you, of course, to our very own Charles out in Las Vegas. Thank you for hanging out and truck talking with us, Charles. All right. And I want to remind you guys one more time, there's no show. Our next show won't be until December 1st, but you can get all your information at trektalking.com, okay? So head on over there to trektalking.com, and just please, everybody, stay safe, be good to each other, and remember, Star Trek fans are the best fans. Hailing frequencies are closed. Good night, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, Earth people. Let's see what's out there. Engage. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.